Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. I'll give you a couple moments to find Zephaniah. My kids are going to cringe at my joke, but it's, you'll find it right after the book before it and right before the book after it. In the middle of the Minor Prophets. If you're like me in the Minor Prophets, I have to put a ribbon right where we were last week so I know where, how to get to the next book. But uh, Zephaniah is where we will be this week. Pastor sends his greetings to everyone. He and Brent are off in Virginia uh, this weekend and a couple days this week. Um, he's preaching a, a special Sunday for a friend there, conducting a marriage seminar. And uh, so I'm sure Angie gave him some good notes on marriage there. But he's off there. Pray for him and Brent as they're uh, away this weekend. He's going to be back Wednesday night. So don't miss Wednesday night. Pastor's going to be teaching in our, our family series, Family Matters series, this Wednesday evening. And it's a great time. We'll mention a little bit more about that at the end of the service today. Zephaniah chapter 3 is where we will be this morning for our main uh, passage. And as you're probably still flipping through your Bible trying to find Zephaniah, I, I got to say it's, it's really neat to be standing here right now and uh, to be back at River City Baptist Church. There are several new faces that were not here when we were here before. And, uh, and, but it's good to see you all and uh, see some old friends. This church holds a very special place in my family's hearts. Uh, we were in a very rough place when we came to River City Baptist in ministry and in life. And God used this church, the people of this church, to love our family back to health. And we're so thankful for this church. We've missed it over the last few years as we've been away in Ohio, uh, but been able to keep in touch with with friends and, and our church family here, and it's good to be back. Pastor really messed me up in January when he asked me if, he, if I'd consider coming back, <laughs> and, uh, but here we are, and uh, excited to be here today preaching from the book of Zephaniah. You know, as a child, one of the scariest things to hear, for me anyway, I don't know about you, but one of the scariest things for me to hear was when one of my parents would look at me and say, go to your room and wait for one of us to come. Anybody else with me on that? You've, you've been there. Mom or dad, either one. And, and my mom, she's just this tiny little, you would think, unassuming lady, you know. My dad was, he served in the, in the military for 20 years. He played college football. I remember my dad, you know, he's not the guy you want to be on the wrong side of meeting in a dark alley, that kind of a, he's a big man. Uh, but gentle as could be as well, but go to your room and one of us will come up shortly. You know, that, those are the moments when as a child I'm, I'm going up to my room, scared for my life, <laughs> you know, trying to find a hiding place that maybe I hadn't found before in, in my bedroom that mom and dad wouldn't know about. Uh, you know, stuffing the back of my pants because I knew what was coming you know, trying to add some extra cushion there. It, it scared me to death when, when that was coming, when that was going to happen. You know, and those of you that know me, you may be surprised or, or maybe not, but that happened on a regular basis for me in my life. Uh, we actually had two different paddles in our, in our home. Uh, one was just for regular offenses, and we had another one that was called the Board of Correction, and that was for worse offenses, and we had our names written on them in tally marks. I think the kids put the tally marks on there, so 
I did not have the most, by the way, just to clear the air. I did not have the most on the tally marks, but uh, that's what we had. I knew my parents were going to come, and I knew that judgment was going to happen, and it was going to happen swift. I would get in my room, and I would pray, please let it be dad. Please let it be dad. And you say, but you just said your dad was a big man, strong man. Yes, and he was afraid he was going to hurt us, so he spanked softer than, softer than mom. Mom was a fiery little lady with skinny arms that would just, like, go right, cut right through the wind. And that, pat- I mean, it would just, so you didn't want, and it, yeah, so you wanted dad. And you'd pray for it, and you'd just hope it would come. But one thing I always knew was going to happen, after the pain, after the judgment hit, no pun intended on the hit. After the judgment hit, I always knew that something was going to happen. No matter who it was, mom or dad, they were going to sit me down on my bed, they were going to put their arm around me, and they were going to express their love for me. And they were going to restore me through grace. What my mom and dad did for me was they gave me the picture of God. They gave me a picture of God, and that's what we see happening in the book of Zephaniah. We see a picture of God pronouncing judgment, go to your room, I'm going to be along shortly. But then he also gives a promise in advance of the judgment, he gives a promise of restoration through grace. This is what he does. I tell you, the book of Zephaniah is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. We stand in need of judgment. We stand deserving of judgment. But God, through his grace, makes a way for restoration. We've seen in the minor prophets so many messages of judgment to come. Judgment to come. Judgment's coming. A couple weeks ago, we heard Levi preach a message out of Nahum where he proclaimed payday someday. It's coming. You just go to your room and think about what you've done and I'll be along shortly was the message of Nahum. Zephaniah comes along and along with many of the minor prophets, Zephaniah bears this message of judgment coming. We don't know a whole lot about Zephaniah. Verse 1 of Zephaniah uh, of chapter 1 indicates the little bit that we do know about him, and it gives us actually his lineage, a brief picture of his lineage. He is actually a descendant of King Hezekiah, so he's got royalty in his blood. So he's a a royal prophet. And we also know that uh, because of this and where he ministered in the days of Josiah, that he, who was king of Judah, more than likely because of his lineage, because of his family, because of where he was and who he was ministering under, he was probably located in Jerusalem. So he was kind of like at the central hub of where everything that was going on uh, needed to go on. This would kind of like be, be like pastoring or being a prophet in Washington, D.C. for us today uh, is, is where. So you can imagine how difficult that possibly could have been for Zephaniah as he's ministering. He proclaims quite frequently, actually more than any of the other minor prophets, he proclaims the, the, the phrase, the day of the Lord. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, the day of the Lord is a pointing to a time of judgment that's going to happen. And Zephaniah proclaims this more often than any other prophet. 
The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's at hand, it's coming, it's here. It's interesting to note that this book was written 50 years after Nahum. So we heard a couple weeks ago, like I said, Levi preached on Nahum, payday's coming. 50 years later, Zephaniah is writing this message, proclaiming this message to the people, judgments here. Zephaniah, in the chronological scale of things, Zephaniah was the last prophet before the people of Judah went into captivity. So it was, now is the time. The day of the Lord is here. Now's the time to get ready to go. He was one of the contemporaries of Jeremiah and Micah. If you know anything about history too, Jeremiah actually went into captivity with the people of Judah. So he didn't just minister to them beforehand, he actually went into captivity with them. And you see the Lord's hand in all of this, the Lord's working, and we could spend so much time looking at what God was doing and how God was orchestrating things and, and setting things in place and in play. Uh, you know, little tidbits like uh, God putting people in place, Esther, remember Esther? Going into the palace there? It's quite possible that, that Nehemiah served in the palace when Esther was queen, which would have given Nehemiah the access that he had to go to the king and ask the questions of the king that he could. Setting all things up. Here's God's plan of restoration already in place, already playing out. The Lord is working. We see the Zephaniah's message on the day of the Lord as a warning that Judah is in their final days. That judgment is near. And through divine judgment at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, this is going to happen. Most of the message of Zephaniah is to warn against sin and the need to initiate the purification of people's hearts and lives. And we're going to see that this morning. You need to repent of your sin and you need to get right with God. That's the, that's the bulk of the message of the book of Zephaniah. And before you think, oh, a message like that, I don't need to hear it, I'm a Christian, I'm sitting here in church today. Remember who Zephaniah was writing to, the children of Israel. He's writing to God's chosen people. He's writing to one of the most religious groups of people. And he's still having to call out, and all of these prophets come leading up to Zephaniah have been calling out, you need to repent of your sin and get right with God before judgment comes. So this message here today is for all of us. The word of God is profitable for all of us. Many who would know the importance and significance of such verses like John 3.16, you know, you, you turn on a sporting event, somebody's inevitably got a, a sign holding it up, John 3.16. It's the most looked up verse on the internet, John 3.16, because people see that and want to see what it says. But a lot of people are aware of that, but they're completely aware, uh, unaware of verses like we see in Zephaniah chapter number three. And I hope you have, have found your place there. I've been giving you time to get there. Zephaniah chapter three, beginning in verse number 14. It says, sing, O daughter of Zion. You say, wait a second, this is a message of judgment. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your judgment. 
He has cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. As a promise of restoration to come. Verse 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. And this is the verse, verse 17, that I want you to really catch on to. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. What a promise. Judgment's coming. There's a call for repentance we'll see this morning. And if we will repent... There's a restoration that's promised here. Can you imagine God singing in joy over you? One author expressed about Zephaniah 3.17, this verse is set somewhat like a small island sheltered in the midst of a a storm-tossed sea. The book seems rather harsh. It's cruel as if God is pouring out his fury But despite the severity of the punishment, God is pouring out. He's still loving and he's still gracious. God is glorified in judgment as much as he is glorified in saving. We like to look at, oh, God is love, God is love, God is love. And that's a wonderful aspect of God. But God is justice as well. He is wrath and judgment. And the reality is you cannot have one without the other. He is perfect in his love, but he is perfect in his judgment as well. They make up who God is fully, and they complement one another. They don't contrast with one another. One important thing to note about this message here is that every minor prophet, as you look into it, and sometimes it's hard to see because of the nature of the message that they're proclaiming, but every minor prophet promotes a message of hope despite God's judgment on the wickedness. There's always hope. Zephaniah is no different. The people have continually rejected the message of the prophets. I imagine in my mind, because I have a very overactive imagination, I imagine prophets coming in after the last one and the children of Israel finally getting to a point where they're going, oh, here comes another one. Oh, here comes another one. Oh, here comes another one. They Not wanting to listen to them. I mean, if you read Jeremiah and see what he went through, they put him in cages, they... They dropped him in pits. They, they did all sorts of horrible things to Jeremiah because they didn't like the message that he had to give. But it was the message they needed to hear. And even through all of the rejection, even through all the rejection that Israel uh, pushed back against the messages that they were being given, God still continues to reach out. He still continues to reach out. And you may be pushing God away today. You may be pushing against what God is trying to bring you along with. Maybe it's you need to put aside this sin in your life. Maybe it's you need to come to me and trust me for salvation today. And you may be pushing against it, but God is continually reaching out to you. Let's start off this morning as we get in. We see the Lord's judgment. This covers, this portion of Zephaniah's message covers the the most of the book. 
you go from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse number 8, you see the judgment, the Lord's judgment pronounced here. And God begins to use a strong language, and he literally says that he, he intends to judge. He intends to judge. That's the, the, the message I got from mom and dad, go to your room. <laughs> there was an intention to judge. God intends to judge. Very strong here. He doesn't, he doesn't mess around with his message. He gets right to the point. And remember, we're at Zephaniah, the last of the, of the prophets before Judah goes into captivity. We're at a point now where it's, this is, you get right or you're going to have problems. This language that we see here is reminiscent of what we see of Noah and the flood. You have a chance to get right and join Noah, or you're going to be judged. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse number 2, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. Boy, he doesn't, he doesn't mess around. I mean, Zephaniah says, hey, here's who I am. Hezekiah was my great-great-grandfather. Josiah is your king. God's going to utterly, utterly destroy everything. That's the message. That's how he starts off. So you can see how serious a place we are. The prophet then narrows this words of judgment down, and he focuses specifically on Judah, specifying the causes of judgment. So this is how God works, okay? God doesn't just say, I don't like what you're doing, I'm going to judge you. He lets you know what your sins are. He clear, here's your judgment and here's why your judgment. Parents, let me just throw this out there because I'm not speaking during the Family Matters series, but parents, <laughs> so whenever you have punishment going with your kids, grandparents, because I know my parents, my parents have no problem punishing my kids. This is an opportunity to teach our kids. Here's what you did, here's why it's wrong, and here's what the Bible has to say about it. That's called discipling your children. That's, uh, that's free. He gives the specific causes of judgment. He notes apostasy and idolatry in verses, uh, verse number four of chapter one. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. So he names this out here and, and they're always coupled with this moral and ethical corruption that's taking place. And it's interesting to note in Israel's case, a lot of the corruption was taking place in the religious system. They were doing things on their own. They were superseding what God had already put down. If you do some history on the religious law and the religious system, the Pharisees and things that we see in, in the New Testament, there were over 400 added rules and regulations that were not biblical in the Pharisaical system. They're adding too. And, and to make matters worse, what we see here is they're, they're not just worshiping God, but they're adding on false gods as well. And before you get cozy in this one, we do the same thing, just not in the same form necessarily. 
Let's look at a little bit of this. Zephaniah calling out the religious activities by referencing idolatrous priests there in, in verse number four, as we saw. Idolatry, this is those worshiping false gods, no matter what the name. These are people that embrace religion. Oh, it's, you call yourself Christian? Okay. You call yourself Christian? Oh, okay. There's no discernment here. There's no discernment. Just because it calls itself Christian doesn't mean it is. You say, what's the defining factor? For me, it's Jesus Christ and the gospel. If you don't believe Jesus is God and you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, we got a problem. Because there's a problem with what the Bible says and what you're saying if there's more than one way to heaven. So for us today, you know, you say, well, I don't have any statues in my house that I'm bowing down to and worshiping. Well, that's good. <laughs> but do you love treasure? Do you love or treasure anything more than God? Is there anything that takes priority in your life over God? Do you prioritize anything or anyone over God? You know, for those of us that are married and are in fantastic relationships, I love my wife dearly. But God must come first or I am not loving her properly. And my wife can become an idol in my life if I'm not careful. I don't think I ever have a problem with her worshiping me. But <laughs> Does anything bring me more pleasure than the things of God? good. <laughs> Does anything bring me more pleasure than the things of God? Where do you find your joy? Where do you find your happiness and your peace and your contentment? It must be wrapped up in the things of God. Otherwise, there could be an idolatrous nature here. Do I place my identity? Here's one that we're really facing in our society today, right? Do I place my identity in anything over my status as the child of God? What I do, for a long time I struggled with this in ministry, I used to identify, oh, I'm a pastor. And while that sounds great, that was not a good thing. Because I am a child of God first and foremost. He identifies me. Nobody else does. You don't identify me. I don't identify myself. Society doesn't define me. They don't get to identify me. God is the only one who has the opportunity to do that. And as a, someone who has trusted him for salvation, I am a child of God. Done. But if that's not what we're doing, if our, our society is getting into idol worship because we're worshiping identity. Do I look to anything or anyone to meet my needs instead of God? Oh boy, I could tell you stories about God meeting needs. Some of you are, remember when we were going through things here. I was four months, the beginning of 2020, just before COVID, I was unemployed for four months. I actually got a job after COVID hit, which was God. But I remember going home from church. We came home from here one day. We lived on the west side. And I remember pulling up to our house and there was a box of groceries sitting on my doorstep. Don't know where it came from, except for Walmart. Somebody sent it to us. Happened again the next day. 
Our cupboards were more full when I was unemployed than they ever were when I had a job. God provides. God provides. And I point to my kids during that time. Look what God did. And they're going, who sent the groceries? We don't know. And it doesn't matter. God did it. God did it. Are you trusting anybody other than God? I don't need anybody other than God. God may use you as an instrument. But all praise and glory goes to God. Do I seek fulfillment or satisfaction from anything outside of God? He satisfies. He's the only one that can satisfy. Do I seek comfort outside of God? He's the only one who can comfort. Truly comfort. So we see this idolatry. We see adultery taking place. And before you jump into thinking about that with marital relationships, this adultery is worshiping the true God and false gods. We see in verse number four of chapter one that they were worshiping Baal. They were coupling their worship of God with the worship of Baal. That's adultery spiritually. What else are we worshiping other than God? What else are we allowing into our lives other than God to take that first place? Then we see apostasy taking place. And you see this message throughout many of the minor prophets. They just stopped worshiping God altogether. They just, they gave up on it. For whatever reason, they just, they stopped. That's apostasy. That's walking away from God. So these are the judgments that are being pronounced. And then in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1, we see, And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such that are clothed with foreign apparel. And the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. So we see social customs come up next. Now, He's not saying that if you wear something that's made in another country, that's a sin, okay? But they're not identifying as the children of God and how they carry themselves. I'll never forget going to the grocery store with my, my mom when I was a kid. She always took one of us with her because we ate so much that she needed two carts. We were at the commissary at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. That's where I grew up. We're at the commissary and we're pushing the carts around. I'm following mom. She's throwing stuff in my cart. And uh, I'm trying to sneak stuff into my cart. We're going around, and we got to the cash register, and the lady stopped my mom, who was checking us out, and she said, are you a Christian? And my mom said, yeah, I am. Why do you ask? And the lady said, I could just tell by the way you carried yourself and the way you dealt with your son and that you, you must be a Christian. We don't need to identify with society and all that's going on. We need to identify with God. We need to be able to be identified as different. Not weird necessarily, but different as in we're Christians. There's something about us because the change that God has made in our lives. Some commentators believe that this was a reflection of outward appearance. They would, they would often adorn themselves not wanting to identify as the people of God. But folks, that's what we need to do. Society needs to see a difference because of what Christ has done in our lives. This is not a strict regulation that we, that we put on people uh, for standing with God. 
how you dress does not give you standing with God or decrease your standing with God. Jesus took care of that at the cross. That's why he said, it is finished. Nothing else was necessary. Jesus is my standing with God. But these social customs, commerce is the next one. The, the third reason that gets mentioned, verses 10 and 11, though it's not stated explicitly in this verse, it's undoubtedly, it's addressing the injustices, the corruption in the business dealings. And as always, there, there are some who are indifferent, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. They're over here going, I'm just minding my own business. Oh, if I, if, I, if I don't rock the boat, maybe it'll just work itself out in the end. In the book of Acts, Gamaliel tried to do this with the Sanhedrin when they were trying to convict uh, Peter and John of preaching Jesus at the temple. Gamaliel said, hey, let's just, let's just hope this whole thing goes away. Let's ignore it and let's just hope the whole thing goes away. And that's, that's not a good way to approach things but there are people there they're just they're indifferent not ah, let them do what they want they're sowing their wild oats they're teenagers no <laughs> no that's not the way it's supposed to work these people are pragmatically trying to ignore the obvious wrongs and hope that it will all sort itself out in the end and that is not the way it's supposed to work that's why this is mentioned in the middle of God pronouncing the judgment that's about to come and the reason for the judgment. God's judgment is shown here in these verses to be swift and to be equally severe for princes, for the merchants, for all of the ungodly. It doesn't matter who you are. God is no respecter of persons. You've heard that? It's a quote from Scripture. Doesn't matter how much you give in the offering. You're not gaining standing with God. If you're living in sin, judgment's coming. Doesn't matter how many times you attend church, if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, attending church does not get you into heaven. God's judgment is swift and it's, it's equal. Chapter 2, as you move through the book, opens with a call for Judah to repent and to be hidden from the coming judgment. He says here in verse number one of chapter two, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. You catch what he called Israel here? And before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Judgment's coming, but if you seek God, humble yourself, realize I've got a problem, and I need to get right with God. And if you do that, it may just be that you're hidden from the Lord's wrath. That speaks to the name of Zephaniah, the hidden one, the one who is hidden. And God shows throughout chapter 2 the extent of his judgment will actually go beyond Judah. If you look at, people will look at these, Israel's history, Judah and Israel, 
and them going into captivity, why would God allow heathen nations to come in and take over and punish his, his own people? He's God. He is the God of the Jews. He's the God of Christians. And he's God of the unsaved as well, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. And so he takes the opportunity to use other nations, heathen nations, to bring judgment, but he tells them they're going to get judged too for their wrong. They're, going to, they're not getting it out because they're doing me a favor. They're going to get judged too. And you see listed here these nations that have been a thorn in the flesh to Judah, the Philistines in chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, the Moabites and the Ammonites in verses 8 to 11, the Ethiopians in verse 12, the Assyrians in verses 13 to 15. And what this does is it demonstrates that though God uses the wicked to judge, he will ultimately punish his enemies. We oftentimes look at the world and, and all, the, all the wrong that is going on, all the injustices that are going on, the wickedness that is going on. God, why don't you just take care of it now? Well, that's our timing. It's a good thing I'm not God, <laughs> right? He will. He will. The psalmist reminds us that he sees that their day is coming. Psalm 73, Asaph went into the tabernacle and he understood their end. And he lets God take care of it. He lets God take care of it. And we see this judgment, the Lord's judgment that is coming. But then we move on into chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 through the rest of the passage, and we see the Lord's grace. As we've seen the predominant message being judgment, unmitigated judgment of God upon the nations of his, and his people, we move to a message of grace. Romans, chapter, Romans 1 through 3, it describes the state of mankind. It echoes the message of Zephaniah. If you read the book of Romans, you can almost put those first couple chapters of Romans. Paul is almost functioning like an attorney, and he's laying out a case against the Jews, the Gentiles, and essentially all mankind. Before we come down Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. He lays out this case here, the state of mankind, the wickedness that is spelled out in the first three chapters of, of Romans. It's kind of like what Zephaniah has done in the first two chapters. And they tell us this, sin is a pollutant, that infects every aspect of our lives. One of the problems that we have in Christianity today is that we tolerate certain sins because this one, it's not that bad. It's, it's not bad. I read one book titled Respectable Sins, The Sins We Tolerate. Because it's, it's not that bad. And I actually kind of enjoy that. And it's, it's, it's okay. But wait, sin is a pollutant. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go drink out of the sewer. You know? Why? Because <laughs> it's nasty. It's polluted. Well, what if you could separate out? Uh-uh. No, mm-mm. These people have these filter straws that they'll stick into any kind of water and drink. Uh-uh. You can have it. Uh-uh. <laughs> no. 
Sin is a pollutant. Sin infects every area of our lives. And that's why this message is so strong. And as we come to the close of Zephaniah, these last verses here, it's no surprise that we see encouragement proclaimed. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Grace. Aren't you thankful for God's grace? This last encouragement comes in, the, in these 12 verses, and what we find is actually a summary of the minor prophets, the, the, the prophets that preached the messages going into exile, before exile happened. And this first section communicates the prophet's basic message that God is gathering the wrath and the threat of judgment coupled up with this call to repentance. But in the second section, it carries the same thought to the surrounding nations. God is not, again, not just the God of Israel or Judah, but of all people. So the judgment that coming and the call to repentance is not just for Israel and Judah, it's for everyone. You see a picture of what God was going to do in the New Testament here, calling all people to repentance, not just a select group. He's giving that opportunity to all. And this final section shows that although the judgment of God is going to follow and Judah is going to go into captivity, that's not going to be the end. That's not the end. There's another day that's coming. There's another day that's coming. The message of encouragement reveals God's grace. As we read earlier from Zephaniah chapter 3, and we saw the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. This is speaking to those that heed the call of repentance. You will have God's presence. You may go through the punishment. Why? Because God is just and punishment's got to happen. But he's still going to be there with you. He's still going to be there with you even through the judgment. We see that illustration in the men in the fiery furnace. Still with them. His presence is still there. This message of encouragement reveals God's grace. There's judgment for sin, but God graciously offers restoration. What we see in these final verses is a prelude to this regathering and God's blessing of the people. When I look at the book of Zephaniah, I cannot help but see the gospel message. Let me summarize Zephaniah this way. God is holy. It speaks to his purity. Because he is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. Habakkuk 1.13. He is of purer eyes than to look on the evil. He can't even look at sin. And then we see that God is justice. That speaks to his righteousness. Everything he does, everything he says is right, it's good, it's proper, it's fitting. And because God is holy and he's pure and he cannot tolerate sin and God is justice, he cannot overlook sin, it must be punished. You know, a judge that does not punish wrongdoing is not a just judge. 
A, ju a judge that plays favor favors and favorites is not a just judge, but God always does that which is right. And if all we knew about God is that he's holy and that he is just, we would be in a horrible place right now, right? Our future is one of condemnation if that's all we knew about God. But we also know that God is loving. And that God is loving that he sent his only son, Jesus, John 3, 16. He loved us in such a way that he sent his only son, that whosoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's your opportunity to repent. God loves you so much that he made him who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? So that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ came, took our sin upon himself on the cross, and in exchange, he gave us his righteous record. So when you trust Jesus to forgive your sins, God no longer looks at you as sinner, but he looks at you as his child. That's where your identity changed. And God is gracious in that he offers salvation as a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, here we are as human beings, as sinners, trying to make it to heaven, work our way to heaven, and we just can't. That's like rowing a rowboat trying to escape going over the top of Niagara Falls. You're rowing and rowing and rowing, and if you've ever seen the Niagara River going towards the falls, you ain't going anywhere except over the falls. But imagine yourself, you're there rowing and rowing and rowing, and all of a sudden somebody comes along the banks of the river and throws a rope to you and says, grab onto the rope and I will pull you to safety. You have a choice to make, don't you? Trust the person and grab onto the rope or inevitably go over the falls. See, this is exactly what God did with Jesus. Jesus came and died in our place, and he is our lifeline. And God is saying, grab onto Jesus, and I will keep you from going over the falls. You've got a choice to make today. Friend, if you're here today and you can't say with me that you know 100% sure that you're on your way to heaven and your sins are forgiven, here's your call. Would you trust Jesus today? It's as simple as admitting, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. God, forgive my sins. And God promises, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can do that right where you are today. Right where you are, you can call on the name of the Lord and be, have your sins forgiven. Christians today, believers, is there something in our lives that we need to get right with God? I know I'm on my way to heaven, but there's something in between me and the Savior. And I need to restore that relationship with him by confessing my sin. God is waiting with open arms to forgive and to heal and to restore because of his grace. Would you deal with that today? Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. If you're here today and you'd say, I don't know 100% sure that all of my sins are forgiven and that I have a home in heaven, but I would like to know. Nobody's looking around but me. Would you, would you slip your hand in the air and say, would you pray for me today that I'd get that settled? 
If you don't know, we, we, want to, we want you to talk with somebody today and get that settled today. I don't know that all my sins are forgiven, but I'd like to know. I'd like to get that settled. Christian, we want to give you an opportunity. If there's something between you and God, if there's some sin that you need to deal with, come and do it today. The altar is open. We won't be long. Just a short verse of invitation this morning. If you need, come. If you need prayer, we've got people that will pray with you. You can respond today.